Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Remember that Robin and Brian Cox's Christmas Compendium of Reason is coming up on December 14th at Royal Albert Hall. Robin and Brian hosting as ever and joined by lots of secret special surprise guests. And also we've got five shows coming up at King's Place for Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. For those shows, Robin is hosting and joined by Helen Chersky and Chris Lintot and Chris Jackson and Mark Watson and Bobby Seagull and Izzy Sooty and loads of other people. You'll find tickets for that show at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons and tickets for the Albert Hall compendium at cosmicshambles.com slash compendium. Don't forget, uh, we have the Cosmic Shambles independent bookshop online, which is perfect for Christmas gifts if you're looking for those We have signed books. Uh, We only sell signed books, basically, by lots of our shambles chums, including Robin and Brian Cox and Helen and Katie Mack, Ginny Smith, Dean Burnett, and lots more, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. Thanks for your support on Patreon. If you are a Patreon supporter, if you're not, you can sign up at patreon.com slash bookshambles and get lots of extra goodies, uh, special ticket offers, extended episodes of Book Shambles, and lots more. And now, enough of that. On to today's episode, here's Robin. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie is not here at the moment, she is currently on leave, but she will be back soon. And uh, just to mention my book, The Importance of Being Interested, is out now. And probably when this goes out, I'll still be doing my 100, actually turned out to be 110 bookshop tour. Uh, I'm guessing the probably likelihood of the day of the week that you're listening to this, I'm going to be in Hull, Hexham, Saltburn, Stockton and various other uh, locations. But thank you very much to everyone who's given me feedback about the uh, importance of being interested, and thank you for everyone who's buying it as well. Um, now, the next person I'm going to talk to, actually was at one of, was at one of my favourite events that I did on the tour, because it was, uh, it's when I get the chance to play in a former Iceland, and indeed before that, Bee Jam Freezer in South Wales, in Swansea, the Volcano Theatre, which uh, is a magnificent theatre from a magnificent ah. theatre company, which is basically made from the old freezer that would deliver the uh, various different forms of party rings to bring joy to the people of Tembe, etc. Um, <laughs> so we're joined by Louis Barth, who is I just, I, I always enjoy, I, I follow all of the stuff that he kind of puts on social media about uh, just light entertainment. He is so deeply, just everything, he's written about uh, Les Dawson, he's written about Ken Dodd, the most recent book is about Morecambe and Wise. He's written about the nature of the, the the record industry and its rise and fall, and also about the the highlights of of Saturday uh, night light entertainment. Um, hello, hello. I'd just like to say, darling, that you warmed that room up beautifully. <laughs> A true professional. You brought warmth to that former freezer in Swansea. It was it was a wonderful freezer. It's my, it's still the best freezer on the tour. Um, but it's I I love the fact. That, I used to I have mean, a sat- I used to have a Saturday job in a um, in a supermarket, and the uh, the fridge was where you would go to hide. You could stay in there for a, not the freezer, but if you, if you didn't want to be found, you could be in there. And also, it was where they kept all the cheese and ham from the delicatessen. I'd be lying if I 
said I didn't help myself occasionally. I like seeing this kind of version of Burgess Meredith's character in Twilight Zone, the one who is the, is the relentless book reader who sits in the bank vault, but instead yeah. we see you, rather than reading, just draped in various different pieces of wafer-thin ham. Oh, yeah. We've taken you back to a very special place there. That's yeah. the Proustian rush that comes with Mattersons. Um, the uh, I, what I, I I mean the last time we saw each other, we were talking about Bernie Clifton. And oh, we were talking uh, about Ted Rogers and yeah. all of those those things. And when when did you both of whom you've worked with? Yeah, I know the good, the good fortune. Of, it's such an interesting and strange thing, isn't it? That those changing tastes, because of course there was a period of time during alternative comedy where, mm, yeah. you know, I I would not have thought of any of those those people, um, and then somewhere in my twenties was when I think the fascination in the other side of the entertainment industry, as it seemed to be mm. at that point, yeah. really got reignited. And I presume, did you ever lose your? I mean, in in terms of 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 your passion for for those what was sometimes be seen as very traditional entertainers did you ever lose that did you ever go through Absolutely. your kind of punk phase yes i did completely completely in my in my teenage years uh it, you know started you know with watching Morecambe and wise les dawson bernie clifton all that with um with my family and you know loved it and then i got to my teenage years and you know the alternatives were happening and i was a big rick and aid fan and i thought ah all the other guys are old hat now the thing is that was general and i you know and also tarby was a tory he was the enemy and all that um and so i reacted against it hugely but i i never stopped loving les because les was on a different plane morecambe and wise were morecambe and wise you untouchable and um then i sort of edged back towards it um in my, in my 20s and i thought oh no there's some good stuff here um, I, I, see, the thing is, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents as, when I was a child. So I was um, a child out of time slightly. So my granddad uh, got me into the Goon Show and also Duke Ellington, Errol Garner, all those things. Because, you know, when I'm not writing books and all that, I um, play drums in jazz groups, big bands and things. Uh, so my granddad and my grandmother was hugely important. My, my grandmother played piano. And um, I used to practice drums with her and um, she'd always say, oh, no, play brushes, play brushes, play quieter. And, you know, when, when you're 12, you just want to bash living, the living shit out of the skins. So and we used to and it's actually funny. We used to do she used to take me. They, they do these nostalgia days in old people's homes and she played the piano and I'd take my drum kit along. And um, on Sunday just gone, Remembrance Sunday, I ended up doing um, uh, a sort of nostalgia wartime songs gig with a jazz group I sometimes play with. And we're doing, you know, sort of swing versions of We'll Meet Again and whatever. And um, there was no bass player. And uh, Phil Blanford, the piano player, was filling the left hand with the... And I thought, God, it's like being with my nan again when I'm 12. And the money's the same. <laughs> it, yeah, so it was... Um, but yeah, I did react, did react against it hugely um and i've come back the people who i dismissed completely i now look at in a different light I, I, I think i probably thought bernie clifton was um old hat and you know oh he's got the ostrich and uh, i think what really really turned me around to bernie was meeting him and seeing actually seeing him live and interviewing him i saw him live at the marina theater in lowestoft when he was doing a summer season there and nobody works harder for a laugh the, the man is just um energy and he he, he he i think he's 
probably the greatest user of props in British comedy. He just has so many things ready to go off at any given moment and the timing of it and it, and the way he prepares them. It, 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 I, I, it, actually, he's um, it's, it's an awful thing. In, it can be cruel and awful being a prankster, but he's a good prankster and his is comedy as pranks as comedy but not mean pranks on people, but it's just things going off, practical jokes. You know, he's a joke shop. Yeah, he loves it. I mean, we, we yeah. talked about that fact that there was a, that one, of, one of my favourite jokes of his is when uh, he and Barry Cryer were playing the Albany in South London doing a benefit gig. And Barry said, oh, by the way, I've got to, I've got to get up to Leeds to do a corporate and do, do a speech. Can I go on first? And they went, oh, that's fine, Barry. And he goes, and is it all right if I have the dressing room just next to the stage just so I can get straight out? And they went, oh, yeah, it's fine. And Barry's got his suitcase. Obviously, he's going off to Leeds. <laughs> and then he goes on stage and then he rushes off and he grabs his suitcase. And he's like, oh, God, he's dragging it all the way down to New Cross Station. He's dragging it. Across London, he drags it onto the train. It's, oh, my God, he's in such a hurry. I can't believe it. he gets to do the speech there in the Leeds Hotel. And then finally he gets to his room and lifts his suitcase up on bed. And he finds out that it's been filled with stage weights. That Bernie is, And what I love about that is that's a joke where Bernie won't even see the punchline. He will the, the the joy of just that prank of uh, or the fact that he'll very often you know just fill suitcases filled with bits of cutlery yeah. uh, and uh, just ridiculous things and I, that's I mean but I think there is the cutlery this... theft gag it is one of Spike Milligan's favourites wasn't it you get a, a, you know a, an authority figure like a newsreader Peter Woods or whoever have them standing outside television centre as they're walking away a load of cutlery would come out of their sleeve yeah. and they raided the canteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Just the the the. It, it's when it's some. It sometimes it seems so beautifully pointless, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's that's what I find interesting is when you're talking about those different axes. I I suppose the similarity because sometimes I watch old episodes of Summertime Seaside Special, and yeah. my goodness, you really do go alternative comedy was needed. Oh yeah, you know yeah, some yeah. really. But then equally now. I, I sat with my friend Carl recently up in Levenshume where we just we went through the opening of about a hundred Netflix comedy specials. Yeah. And you go, No, don't believe that person. No, that doesn't seem authentic. No, and then you come across what you might consider to be yeah. the modern Les Dawson or mm. the modern Morecambe and Wise or the modern Kenny Everett. You're just someone oh, yeah. where you go this is real and whether it's alternative or whether it's you know what might have been called more traditional stuff, still that necessity for of going, ah, oh, like Tim Vine. Oh, yeah. Tim Vine means it. This whole pen behind the ear, all of that stuff. This is this is, is comedy that comes right, you know, all the way through his body, that comedy exists. And the, one of the things about Tim Vine that I love uh, is, you know, when... And actually, there's another version of this. With Tim Vine, quite often, someone will post a Tim Vine joke and say, Tim Vine or Tommy Cooper, and you can't tell which it is. And the same thing goes with Stephen Wright and Chick Murray. Yeah. And, you know, Chick Murray had those deadpan asides. And, and there is, you know, some people have ascribed it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it to Stephen Wright. No, it's a Chick Murray joke. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no. Um, right, going back to you see, the thing is, you mentioned Everett, and it's a source of immense sadness that he died so young. I mean, just generally. But also, in particular, the fact that if he, you know, he, he'd be come, he'd late 70s now and he'd still be doing it. And mm. every new bit of 
kit that came out, he'd be buying one and he'd be right. What does this do? How can I push it until it almost breaks? What can I do with it? How many voices can I get on this? How, what can I, you know, and he, you know, he'd still be showing us the way I think Everett. Um, and you mentioned Barry Cryer a moment ago. Um, I was doing at the NFT um, a night of Everett television, rare Everett television, like his, you know, some of his first, we did showed a nice time with Jonathan Ralph oh, yeah. and uh, Jermaine Greer. And oh, we'll come back to that. And uh, there was one of his shows called Ev that he did for London Weekend Television, which was an early attempt at doing the DJ on the telly thing, because it was all pop videos and him linking them. Anyway, so we showed these and it was it was great fun and people were genuinely loving it. And there was a panel, I was chairing it, and it was uh, James Hogg, a biographer of Everett, uh, David Stafford, another biographer of Everett, yeah. and also the co-creator of a lot of stuff with Alexi Sale in the 80s, really, really funny comedy writer. And of course, Baz. And Baz was sat next to me and... It's, it's no secret that Baz's hearing isn't what it was. And, you know, you have to be on his good side. And I was on his good side. And at these events, there's always uh, not so much a question, more of a statement. And um, <clears throat> this bloke asked this question that was, <clears throat> it seemed like three minutes long. Blah, 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 and I was you know trying to follow it and follow it. And I knew it, it was aimed at Cryer. And I thought, he's not getting this. Because, you know, this bloke was sort of mumbling and, you know, the length of the... At the end of it, I looked at him and cried. So I turned to Cryer and Cryer went, what did he say? I said, he asked, was it different at Thames? <laughs> <laughs> and this bloke looked at me, you, you know, basically you've killed my child, you know, my beautifully formed question. And that really was all it was. Yeah, but I mean, that's there's always a facet, that bit of yeah. you you know you can trust people when they yeah. realise that they're all kind of in the same. When I say game, I don't mean that yeah. in a demeaning way. I mean the realisation that, especially when you I mean, yeah. we talk about Les Dawson and the art of, of his work, and um, we must get to talk about your Morgan Wise book, but I was just going to pr- yes. quickly mention, you know, one of the things that I, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed your, your, your Les Dawson uh, biography. I've enjoyed all your, your books, but it was, um, but still one of my favorite things is the existence of no time for genesis which is or time for genesis which is oh, just yeah, such yeah, yeah. A, a, uh, yeah. a a bizarre uh for, for what we imagine hmm. you know les dawson who wrote some very funny and quite bleak comic novels yeah and uh, a couple of clubs which is great. A card for clubs. Yeah. I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in any way in, in kind of social history. To any, it's just you know. I always quote that bit. You know, the piano player who took to the stage like a gouty hippo. A gouty <laughs> hippo. What what an image that is. And um, he had but all the, the words. But he wrote. You know. A, a, a serious book which has kind of a David Icke quality to it. This kind of slightly paranoid yeah. dystopian future. Yeah. And and I and it didn't sell at all, did it? As far as I know, no, it wasn't and, and, a success. But but also we talk, We were talking earlier about covers, and um, the way the way that covers suggest things, and they, that that cover is clearly passing off as a Len Dayton, isn't it, or something? Yeah. Like that. You know, the, the 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 cover designer thought, well, we'll tee this up as a Len Dayton. Um, yeah, it's an interesting book, and um, um. Yeah, was it the Times review that said um, it's an interesting book that could have done with more editing and possibly the mockery of friends? Oh, that's interesting because that yeah. is because it does go. I mean, that that that's the thing is it, it it's dark it, as hell. I would imagine his editor when he first received mm. it would have just gone, "What? I I oh, 
Oh, I don't know. I didn't realise. You know, it's a really kind of at times there's almost a James Herbert quality to some bits yeah. of it as well. Yeah. It's a, um, we better get on to Morecambe and Wise because that was, is the was, latest book. It was a twofer. Um, the publisher um, wanted his autobiography, and he went, "Okay, um, if you want my autobiography, you've got to take my um, my my magnum opus." Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. I, I would recommend people try if you try and find it. It's not. It's you can normally find it. It's quite often not that cheap. If you ever see it for under a tenner, definitely get it because yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, um, I should have bought Charlie Williams' autobiography yesterday when I saw it in the Dorothy House Hospice Trust. But I thought nine oh, really quid was should. asking a lot, but it oh. turns out nine quid was actually a very reasonable price for Charlie yeah. Williams. E, I've had a laugh. Um, now. Let's move through because there's we're never going to be able to get through this conversation unless I just leap straight to doing more common wise. Which is this was you you said you were slightly worried about when when this was suggested. You were like, why why a new more common wise book? So what was what were the reasons you you then eventually thought? Yeah, actually there is because you write very well. I mean, what I thought was great, and you've done this before as well, is covering that period which other biographers don't cover as well, which is the very early days and then getting sometimes into the minutiae of playing the halls and and all of the build to to eventual success yeah uh that was that was the thing about it because uh, and people people have these, seem to have these ideas about writers that um every book must be wrenched from their soul and that uh, i'm a commercial writer i write what people want to read and i write what publishers want to publish um and my publisher um this is a different pub. My first few books uh, were with Atlantic, who you are. With, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a you know, completely different company now, all different people. And um, one of the people I knew at Atlantic um, went to Head of Zeus and is there. And he got in touch with me shortly, you know, shortly after Ken Dodd died and said, um, Anthony and I, Anthony Cheatham, who runs the company, um, we think there's a market for a Ken Dodd book. And I was thinking in my brain, too soon, too soon, too soon, too soon. And I said, well, yeah, but isn't it too soon? Um, we talked about it. And then as, 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 as things wore on, I thought, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. And they mm. might not do it as well. Um, so I said, yes, and I did it. And I enjoyed it and had a lovely time. And then they said, right, we really want a Morecambe and Wise book. And I said, well, it's been done. It's been done so many times. Gary's written some great books, you know, you know, the, the Graham McCann's book is like just loads and loads of stuff that, you know, and they said, well, yes, but we really want a Morecambe and Wise book. We want a Morecambe and Wise book in our list. And we want you to do it because you're the guy who does our light entertainment books. And I went, okay. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to be retreading. I'm going to be reiterating. Uh, and as I sat down, there were I, I, I'd read all the other books and I noticed there were gaps and, and, you know, not, you know, no slight on anyone who's written about before. It's just my, what interests me. I write the books that I'd want to read and what interests me isn't necessarily what interests another biographer. So I do come at things in a slightly different way. And I noticed that Graham McCann, who's a great writer and a great researcher, had um, given Janet Webb a paragraph. And I thought, no, I want to know loads more about Janet Webb. So I think she's got about three pages from me. And I had great fun because, you know, what, what, you know, she didn't leave that many traces other than appearing on this show. But I found cuttings from the Liverpool Echo because she was, she was a scouser uh, saying, you know, Janet Webb um, 
has become a role model for um, the larger woman. And, you know, it was all about body positivity. And they were talking about that in 1971 or whatever. And um, they're talking about body positivity in 1971. I thought that was really interesting. And, and then I discovered that um, she was married to one of the violinists in Peter Knight's orchestra on the show. And just little things like this that no one had mentioned before. Maybe they'd found them before but they hadn't mentioned them before also i've not read before about the i i knew nothing about the singing builder uh which oh, is perpetual end of the peer orgies uh yes. and eric's uh show. Now, now maybe that has been in another book but i don't remember ever reading about about him before well that whole section uh came from um, bob monkhouse's um over is it, uh, over the limit the second oh, book. Oh, that's funny because I've read that. I must have totally forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Or not realised who he was and just filed him as someone else. Um, yeah. No, singing the singing bricklayer from Hull, uh, David Whitfield, who was um, a notorious swordsman, and um, Eric went round to see him one day in Black. They, he was. They were one of the peers in Blackpool and he was at the opera house and went around to see him one day. Knocked on the dressing room door and found him surrounded by groupies, and. Um, he invited David Whitfield invited Eric to join in and uh, he says no I've already had some this morning at the Vicar's coffee morning <laughs> but there's a beautiful image of what Eric's face must have looked like yeah when especially because I love the way that you play with you know that the kind of the, the, some of the early characterization of him where he was this person who was basically a, a, an extremely naive but attempted to be saucy knave at times yeah. and you can see that the actual confrontation is so often in these kind of you know in, in in English culture that actually suddenly seeing sex in a room was like well I, I certainly wasn't expecting this kind of thing you know there's uh, I've I made my apologies and left but the infamous um, News of the World journalists tended that they write that, but actually they tended to make their apologies and stay. Yeah, <laughs> um, the, the, all sorts of tales. I also yeah. love the bed and breakfast thing, or rather the you know in in the, uh, the digs. Uh, in the digs. Yeah, just that 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 beautiful thing of uh, I will definitely tell my friends. Oh, uh, God, yeah. as something to write in the visitors book, which was basically meant whenever you open the visitors book, you went, oh, this place is going to be terrible. Because my my dad, who was in rep theatre for a while, he, he tells me about that's still one of his favourite things to talk about is the places you would turn up and you go and all we saw was there was a rat on the cooker and we thought no, we're not staying here. Um, and there's just so many great stories. There's, you must have read it. Have you read that book, um, Exit Through the Fireplace? I haven't. I've read her other one, uh, Kate. Yeah. Kate, Kate Dunn. That's right, yes. Kate Dunn. And um, that, that's a wonderful book of memories of people travelling around in the theatre. About early television, which is very, very good. But I haven't read Exit Through the Fireplace. I must get it. No, I, 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 li I liked her other one. Um, and I meant to get Exit Through the Fireplace. And actually, what, one book, another book that I need to get, because um, I saw you um, and the author talking about it at the Chortle Festival. And um, I, I, still, I still need to get Les Dennis's um, memoirs, because I love Les. And um, I, I, I must, must get hold of that. Well, that's it's such an interesting book. I mean, that, it was when I read that book that I realised there was. I mean, because when I spoke to Les for with Josie and me when we were at the Chalk Fest, he's just got so many stories. And I, what yeah. I love about this world is that so often we presume that someone is something, and you cannot imagine. Yeah. So when Les is doing Family Fortunes, the idea that he would then be racing off to go and watch a Beckett play. 
Yeah. Is not what, yeah, because he's been placed, television gives you this very specific yeah. context. And actually, of course, very often people don't want you in any way to lose that context. That's no. what you are. You are a brand. And this is what you are. You know, your, your brand is this anodyne person who's perfect for hosting yeah. uh, family fortunes. And he is, and it's, um, yeah, it's one of my one of my favorite um, comedy autobiographies, just because of its honesty. Where I mean, as you mentioned yeah. in in uh, when when you talk in the final well, penultimate chapter, talking about um, Eric's heart attack, you know, which was yeah. so soon after Tommy Cooper's, yeah. and you know, the fact that that Les and his double act partner Dustin G, yeah. they had to go front of curtain, front of clock, and just do uh, and knowing what had happened, they hmm. knew that Tommy Cooper had just died. Behind, and behind him, him there, there behind were doctors and there were yeah. and the curtains in front of them. Yeah. And as you said, there's that fascinating bit of footage, which is at the end of the show, everyone's trying yeah. to put on their faces. We've had a lovely time on our live Sunday night show with the, all of that cast of people knowing that Tommy Cooper had just died. Well, they've got the walk down and you look round and Howard Keel's there, Les and Dustin are there. and Where's, where's Cooper? Mm. And then... Oh, and then after the break, it wasn't a news flash. It was the scheduled ITN Sunday night news bulletin. Lead item, Tommy Cooper has died. Um, but the, the, see, the thing about Les is that, um, you know, he's had a healthy life, looked after himself, and he's getting to do all the stuff that all these others would have gone on to do. I mean, you know, Max Wall did Beckett. He lived a long time, got to do all that. You know, Eric would have done, you know, stay, you know, would have done plays and things like that. It would have, it's, it's a real shame. And it's, it's so lovely that Les is, because all of, all of these old comedians, they, they've got, you, I don't think you can be a comedian without that kind of dramatic ability. Mm. Well, Max Wall is. I mean, I was thinking about. I just pulled out actually before we started doing this the the Max Wall the the Fool on the Hill autobiography, which is a very interesting autobiography. I think because it, it, basically he says that he cannot live without being able to. This is what his he is. He is the person going on stage, and it's the most important thing for him. And, and, and um, you know, after after he was blacklisted in the fifties for um, divorcing his wife and marrying a younger woman, Jennifer Chimes. He never stopped. He 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 would you know he went from being a West End star in the pajama game to playing any old toilet, but he mm. never stopped doing it because it's what he did. And the, again, we come back to Morecambe and Wise. In interviews, they were asked, "What would you do if you weren't comedians?" And there was the famous joke answer, which was, my, "We'd be Mike and Bernie Winters." Um, but quite often, you know, they'd come up with these and. Ernie would say, well, I'd, um, they, they basically defaulted to saying, well, we'd end up doing what our dads did. I'd work for Morecambe Corporation and um, um, Ernie would uh, be a railway man. But the simple fact is they couldn't not be or do what they did and who they were. Mm. They, uh, you know, they, they never gave up. They never stopped apart from, you know, when, Ernie was in the Merchant Navy and Eric was down the mines as a Bevin boy. All And Eric used to moan about it and joke about it and say that Sadie pushed him into show business. And Sadie, wise and clever, said, I didn't push him. You know, I, he likes to make out that I did. But, you know, you know, it was, you know, I, I, I pushed a slightly, I pushed a slightly ajar door a bit further open, you know. Um, and the thing is that Eric by all accounts, you couldn't stop him. He was never off. 
Mm. And, um, you know, he just lived to make people laugh and get reactions. And, you know, ultimately, ultimately, that was what killed him because he was having such a nice time. He couldn't stop. And Joan was in the audience going, please stop now, please stop now, please stop now. And um, she knew that he was going to overdo it and collapse. And I, I think that, you know, he probably could have survived the collapse if he hadn't hit his head on a stage weight mm. on the way down. But um, but I presume really by that point for the third heart attack anyway, the, yeah. you know, there yeah. was. Uh, but it's also, I mean, you, you write very well, I think, in the in the uh, about Ernie afterwards. Yes. And it seems to me such a, uh, you know, that bit of him, one, his his wisdom as well of going, yeah. you know, though he does end up to, to do Panto in Windsor. Yeah. He kind of, he really put that off and then it's round yeah. the corner from his house. It's not yeah. far away because he, in the end, it does seem like, and you you mentioned that, that, that the 40 minutes yeah. that was made about him Important and, and that he was rather, rather mean spirited. Yeah. And, and I remember that at the time, mm. thinking that they've made Ernie Wise look like a rather silly old man. And um, and I think for a while there was this kind of, you know, like lots of double acts, uh, but in particular that that double act, I think that mm. there is people will always say that the the straight man, even though he wasn't entirely the straight man, of course, but the nearer to the straight man, the yeah. the, the one is that that the, the uh, that somehow that's the easy bit. And and it still it still annoys me that because now the more I watch them, the and, and especially actually when you watch things like when you watch some of the people who've done like um John T Stevens and um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know, you, when you watch people do that some yeah. of the rather wonderful actually reenactments of Morecambe and Wise and reinventions of Morecambe and Wise, you see that that's 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 an incredible amount of chemistry. That's that's not just someone yeah. standing at the side setting up the lines at all. That's a proper relationship. And I love the fact that beautiful line you say about that Eric would say when Ernie went off sometimes, which is is what's the line about? I get you know, a don't, draft go down my, don't be too long. I, I get a draft down my side. That's a really beautiful yeah. line. Don't be t- the idea of coldness, yeah. the idea of yeah. the coldness when you're not with your double act yeah. partner is 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 utterly and, beautiful. And also the beautiful thing that Eddie Braben noticed. So if they were in the studio and Eric was getting a cup of tea, uh, he'd look round and say, "Where is he? Where is he?" And Eddie would say, "Oh, he's um, he's talking to a he's talking to Ernest Maxin um, next door." Oh, okay, okay. And then he'd go next door and. Um, Ernie would say, "Where is he? Where is he?" He says, "Oh, he's just—he's just having—he's just having a tea with Susie, the floor manager." In the, uh... <laughs> it's just yeah, it's all right. And they—they all—they always wanted to know where the other one was, and it, I mean, it—it it was a part. It, it, well, no, they were—they were closer than brothers. They chose to be brothers. They, you know, they'd known each other since they were teenagers, since they were thirteen. And you know a lot. A lot said about um, oh, they didn't see much of each other when they were adults. Didn't need to. They didn't need to because they, you know, they put in all the groundwork. And you know, you and I have friendships where we might not see someone for six months, but we're still close to them. And when you see someone like that six months later, you pick up exactly where you left off, and it's like you saw them yesterday. Well, I think I think that's true of like both Josie and 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 with Brian Cox as well. Yeah, yeah with Brian Cox, when we toured in two thousand nineteen, we did over one hundred and twenty events together where we share yeah. a dressing room and we just muck around and then we go on stage mm-hmm. and then you don't socialize because you've already had. I think people presume that that's work. Now, of course, it is work, but also yeah. it is also socializing. It yeah. is still you know that and 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 I think yeah, that's a 
But I, th- I yeah, I love the way that you wrote about uh, Ernie Wise. Uh, uh, you know his 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 last few years, and it's 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 beautifully um, put together book, and and just how much information there is when they start off. You know, with Ernie being as as a as a as a child being yeah. called, you know, Britain's Mickey Rooney. Yeah, yeah, the Jack P. Cannon of tomorrow. Yeah. Now, th- see, the thing is, with all of my books, I think I'd find it hard to write about people I didn't like. I loved Les. And when I finished that book, I loved Les even more. I felt, you know, I felt like I'd been living with him. You know, I felt like he'd, he'd been around. There'd been nine presents around me while I was doing it. Um, I had the great good fortune. To, yeah, Doddy's the only one uh, of my subjects that I've met. And um, I really liked him. He was really nice, really kind. You know, again, Marina Marina Theatre Lowestoft um, dressing room. Um uh, my friend Martin Halliday was the manager at the time. He said, "Oh, okay, come on, you got come come around. You got to meet Doddy. You got to meet you got to meet Doddy." And um, I, I just, I think I no, I was working on the Les Dawson book, and he was really, really interested. Ah, Doddy, he really interested, really interested in other reading about other comedians, but didn't want anyone to write about him. Mm. You know, when I said I was writing a book about Les Dawson, he went, "Right, have you got this? Have you got that? Have you got that? Have you spoken to this? Have you spoken to that? Have you?" Blah, blah, blah. And he was—he knew exactly what I needed to do. He was very, very clever and very, very interested. You know, he wanted to read about comedians, but he didn't want anyone to read about him. And, you know, no great secrets to hide or anything. He just—he—he he was just a private person, but he was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly kind and generous with his time all that and i really really liked him and when i came to write the book i liked him even more you know there's all the stuff about you know you hear the stories about him being mean and all that and you know they're true and they're incredibly funny and you know he'd tell them against himself uh and um you know one of his writers dave dutton who um actor writer comedian great man and um dave you know, like so many writers and associates of Doddy, um, fell out with him over money, but still liked him. Mm. So, you know, business was one thing, work was another. And when they saw each other, it was always friendly. You know, Dave was always big D. All right, Doddy. So I came out of that liking Doddy even more. Morecambe and Wise, how can you not adore Morecambe and Wise and I came out of it loving them both even more because I felt I understood them better but I came out of it with vastly enriched love for Ernie because I came out of it thinking he kept it together he absolutely was the glue he made it all work he if Eric was a warrior and Ernie was the mollifying influence. Look, if it doesn't work, we won't use it. It'll be fine. Ernie knew that it would work. And that afterwards, Eric would go, oh, that was brilliant. Ernie understood Eric perfectly and dealt with him. And um, I think Ernie was just an incredibly good man. Yeah, it's really, and I love that some of the letters that you put in there when, when he was dealing with the money side of oh, things, yeah. for instance, which are you know 
very nice, light, entertaining letters that are yeah. at the same time saying, I think a few more guineas may well be necessary oh, yeah. for this. And and then b- what a bizarre thing to see from the BBC is where they actually come back and they give them more money than they asked for. That, I mean, that that's a, must be a legendary letter and, and, and one that should be archived immediately and, and placed on a, on a plinth. Yes, yes. They'd probably name a meeting room after it at yeah. Broadcasting <laughs> House. <laughs> Who would you... Is there anyone that you would worry about? I mean... Obviously, as you said, basically the biographies that you write very often, you, you're yeah. already you, you're asked to write them, and then you go, "Yes, I do want to write this one." Yeah. But is the one that if that never happened, if there was one where you just thought, "Do you know what? I'm just I want to write this. I want it to exist." Who would be top of that list? Monkhouse, no question. Right, because there is no biography of, of Monkhouse, no. is there? I I I absolutely want to write a book about Bob Monkhouse. I would love to. See, that's, I mean, the thing that links him and Ken Dodd as well is that, uh, and a lot of my favourite comedians working now, and a lot of my favourite people generally in the arts, which is, they're also fans, and they haven't stopped being fans, and they still, and it's what I see in science as well, with some of the scientists that I work with, is they never stop being fascinated in so many different ideas, and that's the point, is that the love never goes away for what it is, it never becomes, I I remember talking to Milton Jones once, I can't remember which comedian it was, and I probably wouldn't name them anyway, um, (laughs) where he was backstage at a uh, a benefit do, and one of the comics went, yeah, I reckon that I can do one more big tour, so I'll do another like kind of really big tour, and then I've basically stashed away enough and I can just give it up. And Milton was like, oh, oh, right, but that's a weird thing, isn't it? Because you, you, the idea that you would do this to get enough money to stop doing it seems to throw, to me, compared to someone like, you know, like Milton and Josie and, and, and Stuart Lee and Bridget Cr- and all those people that I know, it's not just about making money. It's not about having, a, you know, if we most, I mean, so many comics, you know, during lockdown, there were comics who just went, I'd never realised I've made a lot more money working as an Uber driver than I do <laughs> going up to, you know, and, and so it, that that idea that you can make enough to retire, you know, Barry yeah. Barry Cryer has definitely got enough to retire now. That's yes. something that we will never ever be seeing. Bernie Clifton could have retired Barry, Barry, years ago. Barry Bernie's never going to retire. No, 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 no. No, Barry, Barry Cryer is some, somewhat over retirement age, and he's yes, still, he's got, got a few, few years left, <laughs> and he's got a few years left. I hope, I hope, a very, very long time left. And he's going out with um, Tony, Ronnie Golden, and um, you know, it's, it's great. You know, he. he well, you know, you know, Cryer, you know, he does 10 minutes when the fridge door opens, yeah. you know, he's, he, I, I love him. I love him. Yeah. You're with your mouth closed. Uh, yeah. So, yeah um, the, uh, but he is just, so, yeah, that's such a fascinating thing to one of my favorite events that I did. I, was... I, actually, we, we should talk, we should talk about this. The, um, the, the, the uh, friends of Cryer thing, we all compare notes. And if you ring him on his birthday, um, it's um, how many jokes did you get? You know, because you can't you can't speak to Cryer on the phone. And it's, it's at least you know you can be on the phone for three minutes and get two jokes. It's just David Badil and I on his last birthday. I said, I said I've just rung Cryer and we were comparing. It. Oh, did he tell you the one about? Yeah. <laughs> my my favourite is there was one that I told because he was meant to be doing an event at the Slapstick Festival and then yeah. because he wasn't able to do it, I was in the pulpit in uh, Bristol Cathedral about to, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it was a Harold Lloyd we're about to put on, and I told him, it, uh, uh, I, I said this is, a, I think the joke Barry would have told, and it's the one that he found from Walter Matthau, and I'm not going to tell the joke, uh, but the punchline is, well, I never told you I was tidy. <laughs> 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 
So that's all. You can now work it out. Anyone listening to this, you go back and you'll find out what the joke. But I love that joke. It's a beautiful, beautiful joke. We've run out of time, and yes. I'm gonna, which I knew would happen. Um, we haven't started at all, really. Um, Sunshine and Laughter is out now, and uh, I recommend all Lewis books. They're, they're they're really anyone with even the slightest interest in any of these entertainers, you will you will really enjoy them, and you will get such a, as a, and as you said, a full full listing of. Uh, I love those. That's another thing. We all list people somewhere in there, as well as wanting that that bit where like the Ken, Kenneth Williams compendium. Have you got that? Or Kenneth Williams companion? Is it? Uh, no, I haven't. It's basically a list of everything he ever did. I mean, it's yeah. remarkable. It starts with his first performance as a child at school. Oh, like, like it's, go- it's basically like Lewison's um, Beatles Bible. Yeah, and it, and then it's little <clears throat> anecdotes from different yeah. people who knew him. But yeah. it's got every single ad voiceover, and they are those kind of books. You think, oh, I just uh, I might spend Sunday in this book for a while. But no, I should the- say, Lewis books are, are, are aren't merely that. They are the majority of it is telling it's, very it's often the- some of the story that's not been told. The fatal bedside dipping book i'll just have a look at some of his um radio appearances and then four hours later i remember when the bbc brought out the the first time they brought out their comedy guy which was mark lewison as well wasn't it i think and and when dave gorman got that and i used to stay around his flat quite a lot when i was up in manchester and we would just sit there go let's have a quick look let's what was the name of that let's look up end of part one because that was an interesting sketch show and then of course you play tag and tag and tag and tag and as you said and then it's 4 a.m well, that book is responsible for one of my great obsessions, and it's an obsession I can never realise because the programme doesn't exist. All there is is some documentation that I've gone through at Caversham, the BBC Written Archives. I can't find a script. Uh, the tape doesn't exist, but there is Mark Lewison's description of it in that book, and it seems that a load of us independently got that book, and it seemed to fall open at that page, and it was what the living christ is this and it was a program a one-off special in 1960 um in which uh fred emney looks at the music business and it's called fred emney picks a pot (laughs) and i a load of us um uh phil norman uh, john williams all, all the people i know who write about old telly who research old telly, uh, Tim Worthington, all the TV cream lot, we all just went, in our independent garrets, went, God, I wish I could see this. And, you know, that that book came out oh, 25 years ago, and w- to this day, and Matthew Sweet's obsessed with it. None of us, it's an obsession that's never gone away. And in a way, it's perfect, because it doesn't exist, so we can never be disappointed. It's the perfect thing. Yeah, so yeah. many of those things. I always think that uh, Ringing the Changes, which is a wonderful uh, kind of quite ghostly story by Robert Aikman. Yeah. And it's one of those ones, again, that was wiped from the when I, I forget which, which TV region of ITV made it version. But Alan Moore has such an incredible memory that he has recited the whole thing from memory of how he remembers the TV adaptation working. And I realised mm-hmm. that his recitation of that and what it created in my mind mm-hmm. would be better than any tape that is eventually found to be in some kind of cellar in North Korea, which oh, has all of those. Yeah. Well, my mate Patrick Humphrey's biographer of Nick Drake and a huge Bob Dylan fan. He told me once about a Bob Dylan convention where the star guest was a man with an incredibly retentive memory who could remember all of Madhouse on Castle Street. 
Oh well, let's remake that episode of Thirty Nine Steps then. Let's let, let the Thirty Nine yeah. Steps as uh, now interpreted through the work of Dylan. And I think we should also. I'm sure the Beckett Estate won't mind if we rewrite Crap's last tape and do a Monkhouse's last tape. Uh, I'm certain that because I've heard the Beckett Estate don't mind what you do with his work. <laughs> That's right. Um, the, I should mention because we're mentioning Max Wall as well. It yeah. pops up, and if anyone wants to see Max Wall, the second act of Waiting for Godot with Max Wall and Leo McKern is uh, on YouTube at the moment. It's uh, if you look up Wake for Sam, which was done in memory of Samuel Beckett many years ago, just after he died. There's lots of interesting things on it, but the second half of that show is the second half of Waiting for Godot with Leo McKern and Max Wall, and it is it's really worth watching. Excellent. I love Leo McKern. Louis, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, uh, sunshine and love. Well, let's do a, we'll do a proper... In fact, I really want to do a, an episode about uh, just about uh, Les Dawson's book. So at some point, we should, we should, we should oh, do... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that would be yeah. a delight to do. Yeah. Um, thank everyone for listening as well. Thank you for... Uh, uh, and uh, as I said, uh, I'm still on tour. The 100 uh, Bookshop Tour uh, continues. Go to CosmicShambles.com and you'll find that. And also uh, Brian uh, Coxmere doing another of our Compendium of Reading shows and it's at the Albert Hall on the 14th of December and around that are also our uh, as usual nine lessons and carols for curious people at King's Place in London so thanks for listening, thank you to our producer Trent Burton thank you to Louis, bye bye Thanks very much for listening remember to rate, like, subscribe five stars, uh, all the things that you do with a podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everywhere else check out all our upcoming events on the cosmic shambles website louis book is out now robin's book is out now we'll be back next week with another new episode until then take care and bye this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robin's book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions